From Animal Media, this is Tech on Politics, the podcast that lives at the intersection of technology and politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris. I've been thinking a lot about the power of our tech tools and how we are using these tools for better or worse. If A equals B and B equals C, then A must also equal C. This is called the transitive property. Power and politics go hand in hand. Technology powers our world. So technology is power. If technology equals power and power equals politics, then technology must also equal politics. To talk through these ideas, I went straight to the person whose writings and insights have always balanced love of technology and critique. So today on Tech on Politics, we are joined by author, teacher, and digital community expert, Howard Reingold. The man is credited with coining the term virtual community, author of hundreds of articles and books on our digital lives, including NetSmart, How to Thrive Online, Smart Mobs, and most recently, a mini course on how to manage crap detection online. Howard, thanks for joining Tech on Politics. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Help our listeners understand what's going on. Media bubbles, misinformation online, crap detection. Are Facebook and Twitter to blame? Are these design flaws keeping us trapped in newsfeed bubbles? And is the media justified in blaming these technologies? I think we need to roll back a little bit and first understand that when you talk about technology, it's the hardware and the software, the, the media that make it possible, the institutions around those media, the environment. Are you in a, a dictatorship? Are you in a democracy? Are you in a place where there's good education or bad education? And then the individual. What, what does the individual know and, and believe? And, and these things are all intertwingled with digital media. When I first started writing about it, I sat down and thought, okay, this is 1980s. People are using modems to communicate. What's new and what's important about it? And what was new was, for the first time, we had many-to-many media. Up until the times people started using modems, kind of the precursors of the Internet, a few people in a few television and radio organizations and newspapers, they would determine what pretty much everybody else found out about the world. Now, everybody's got a... I used to say everybody has a a printing press and a broadcasting station and a, a place of assembly on their computer. Now they've got them in their pockets. Now, they are robots generating news. Oh, and, that's, and now it's not just everybody. It's a whole, whole bunch of non-people generating it. However, you can't trust the authority of the text. You have to determine which of that information is good information, bad information, misinformation, disinformation. Well, that's, a, that's a, an educational challenge. You know, we live in a world now where you have 400,000 bots generating 20% of the chatter. And at the same time, we're driven to click. I was reading your crap detection uh, course online, and you had a lot of great links to, to fact checkers. There was like a dozen, I think, on there. And then I started thinking to myself, well, who's fact 
checking the fact checking websites. <laughs> How do we navigate this world? Well, well, first, I think practically, we need to start teaching kids in middle school. It might even be earlier than that, but at least by middle school, you've got to sit them down and and go through it with them. You know, a lot of parents, I think, with with some degree of accuracy, believe. You know, I can talk about the facts of life with my kids because I, I'm pretty sure I know more about sex than they do. But uh, you know, they know more about technology than I do. What, what do I have to say? Just sitting down with them and asking them questions about what they're doing and talking to them about the realities we're talking about is really important. Don't leave it just to whatever they pick up from bots and their their peers. But there are tools that are available. I started collecting links to fact-checking sources, and, and, and I'll get to there how you There are so find. many of them. I had a large collection of unsorted links several years ago, and I, I was teaching a three-hour course at, at, at Stanford, and three hour, we met for three hours once a week. And if a student missed a class session, they owed me three hours. So I started telling them, okay, I've got this big unsorted collection of links. I want you to go and and check them out and make arguments for why some of them are the best. I want you to start putting them into some kind of order. And over a couple of years, something began to emerge that, that looked like a pretty good resource. And then, then I went public about it. I gave it a short URL, bit.ly slash crap detect. I got the term crap detection from Ernest Hemingway, who said that every good journalist needs to have an internal crap detector. And then I put it on a on a Google Doc where people can make comments, they can make suggestions. And our listeners can go to this. And your the listeners link? can go to, to bit.ly crapdetect, one word, and make suggestions there and use use that and spread the word to others that they can use that. I've made the, the, the resource available and then people started saying, you know, this source is a little partisan and here's why. And some people have said, oh, you need to add so-and-so. So it has evolved. I hope it continues to evolve. It's what it is. It's just a collection of tools for, for checking things. And National Institutes for Health and other authorities have a way of checking medical rumors. There are ways of checking political rumors, non nonpartisan. The paradox is people need to want to do that. I also think that there are maybe technologies that ways that the media could do it better. A number of years ago, a graduate student had a, a project that was a, a browser plugin that when, when you came across a website that made a, a factual claim, it would link you to a website that questioned that, that had, had an, an opposite viewpoint to that. It wasn't telling you which one was true. It was just showing you where the controversy was. Why couldn't Facebook begin to, to say this is a claim or this may be for Well, they could bot. almost integrate that into the news feed maybe. Yeah. And so could Twitter. Yes. Like here, here are, you know, through smart algorithms, mechanisms by which you can vet the communicator of this content. You know, and one of the things that you mentioned in your book, NetSmart, How to Thrive Online, is five fundamental literacies. Yes. Well, I've been How writing... does that play into this? Well, you introduced me as someone who's critical and enthusiastic, and I've had to answer for my enthusiasm since the beginning. And 
I did not start out to be a scholar. I'm a freelance writer. And I wrote this article about virtual communities and then a book. The book was 1992. It was just... It's amazing the, that you were writing about this in 92. I, I tend to be about 10 years ahead. And I think the world will catch up with me 10 years after I die. And um, and it's not always useful in either writing books or, or business to be... 10 years ahead. The question that I was asked by critics and scholars and, and frankly myself was, well, are these things any good for us? And in the 1980s, it was personal computers. And in the 1990s, it was this notion that people were going to communicate through what are now known as social media. And after thinking about it for a long time, my undoubtedly optimistic answer is it depends on what people know. That there's a literacy that goes along with access to the information and the technology. You know, with the printing press, there were 30,000 handwritten books in Europe when, when Gutenberg created the printing press. 50 years later, there are 30 million books. The population of literates grew. It took a while before monarchies were overthrown and people started using constitutions, all of which were political outcomes of access to technology and the literacies wow. that went with them. You know, the if you believe in democracy, it, it has a Literacy lot. is fundamental. Literacy is fundamental. Especially Under reading, but then also now literacy and sorting through information. Yes. But you mentioned the five literacies. So right. my response was, okay, it's, this is not a secret. It's just that it's not widespread. I believe even more fundamental than... Crap detection is attention. The attention economy that runs the industries like Facebook and Twitter has a lot economy. of expertise behind it. You mentioned click on that link. Yep. They know a lot about human psychology. They're doing huge mass experiments. They know how to attract your attention and keep your attention. And who in the world has not seen people walking into traffic while looking at their phones. There was gee, years... This is kind of like this persuasive technology that kind of emerged some number of years ago, I guess. Well, it's an attention magnet, particularly the ones that you carry in your pocket. And there are people whose livelihood depends on making it more and more of an attention magnet. The good news is attention is not out of your control. You can learn to rest some control over it. There's a lot of neuroscience behind it. I cite it in my, my book. But this goes back to all of the meditative disciplines that, that say, look, just sit down and watch your mind go by. You have no control over your thoughts. If you sit down and you watch your thoughts after a while, you can start becoming aware of how they are wandering. So I don't think any professor in the world fails to face the situation in which you're not no longer looking into the eyes of your students. You're looking at the lids of their laptops. What do you do about that situation? When I was teaching social media, I felt it was a cop-out to say, just shut your laptops. I came up with a number of different strategies so that they would become aware of where their attention was going. You open your laptop to look up something the teacher said, and that's a conscious act. Somehow or another, you slip into Facebook or your email. That's not a conscious act. You're not controlling it. I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm telling you to be aware of it. You open your laptop. I'm expecting you to not do it unconsciously. And by the way, 
if you're in a seminar with 15 or 20 students and you care so deeply about your grades, don't you think that the teacher knows when, when your attention is, is wandering or not? I also had my students co-teach with me so that they could learn what it's like to try to capture the attention That's of That's interesting. Yeah, I have actually like a little button inside my email that says hide my inbox. Simply to, <laughs> so that when I'm sitting there working, I'm not being distracted by the constant flow of thousands of emails <laughs> into my inbox on a regular basis. And again, we make these decisions very quickly. It's, uh, am I going to look at this? Am I going to click on this? Am I going to save this? Am I going to pass this along? Right. Why not make those decisions a little bit more consciously yeah. than, than we make them now? So fundamentally, attention and then crap detection, but also participation. We, w we wouldn't be here speaking about this mass medium if it wasn't for participation. You know, the, the web as we know it was not created by a government. It wasn't created by a company. It was created by people. The way people think affects the way the medium evolves. If, if, if more people participate, you know, uh, Facebook, again, I have critiques and I have enthusiasms about it. I use it uh, a lot. My critique of Facebook is that a lot of people think that's the web, that's the internet. So that's why I believe a literacy of participation is important. The other literacies, literacy of collaboration, uh, have a lot to do with what we're talking about in, in regard to politics. We might get back to that. And the other one was network know-how. And that has a lot to do with this idea that people are paying attention to sources they agree with and the bots that zero in on them, and they're not paying attention to the people they disagree with. And it's exacerbating this divisiveness in the, in the, in the polity. Let's talk about, so they're not paying attention to the people that disagree with them. Well, it used to be an editor would think, uh, okay, I've you know I've got to publish the, the local sports scores, and we we've got a classified advertising from our department stores, but I'm going to make the decision that my readers need to know what's happening in Africa. They may not care, but but we have the power to make them care. Uh, now you can roll your own. You know, I, certainly I didn't invent this idea. Cass Sunstein wrote about this years ago that. When you can roll your own media, you're you're going to be have less incentive to pay attention to things that you don't agree with. And you know, more recently, there was the book by Eli Pariser on the on the filter bubble. It's not only our choices, but the search engines they get to know you better and they get to show you stuff that's more like the stuff that you've been looking. And they're getting for. better at it every day. You could travel around the web and never see anything that you don't really want to see. Don't, you know, one of my, my suggestions to, to students has been find people who, whose intelligence and integrity, honesty, you, you respect, but who you disagree with, and pay attention to them from time to time. If nobody, Should we create a tool for that? Maybe one of our listeners can go out there and create the disagreement tool. Well, we... whenever there's a problem, there's an opportunity. Mm. But, you know, if nobody in your network annoys you, you are in a bubble. You are in an echo chamber. So that should be a good thing. Uh, what? Having people in our network that annoy us. Yes, yes. 
when I wrote uh, Smart Mobs, I, I started out with a question, which is, why are people looking at their phones? They weren't smartphones, but you could do what they called SMS. In 1999, there was a mass demonstration in the Philippines that was organized by SMS. Within hours, a million people hit the square, and they brought down the Joseph Estrada regime. I thought, okay, something's happening. We've lowered the barriers to collective action. If you believe in democracy, well, more people have a voice and more people can act. Well, enough of it has happened now. The Arab Spring, what happened to the Egyptian Revolution, and in Brazil. We don't read a lot about that. We don't see a lot about that in the U.S., but there were mass demonstrations in Brazil you know, prior to the World Cup. A lot of people were irritated that they had raised mm. the price on public transportation for the poorest people, and yet they were building billion-dollar stadiums in many cities. The People were hitting the streets. They were organizing it through text messages. The reason I raised the Arab Spring and the Egyptian Revolution and Brazil was that none of those resulted in long-term political change. The question we have to ask about this many-to-many -many lowering of collective action is we can get a million people on the street. You can organize, get out the vote. You can do things very, very quickly with a lot of people who don't know each other but who, who share an interest. But that's not the same thing as building an effective long-term institution, a, a movement. How can these technologies be used to build movements? How do we move beyond our political parties as we know them now? There's some people talking about what they call liquid democracy. Yeah, I let's talk know. about that. What is next? Well, it's an idea, and I don't know how practical it is, but I don't know anything about farm subsidies, but I might know someone who knows more than I, so I might give my proxy for a vote on that issue to that person. That's something that the technology can allow, and I know a lot of people are talking about blockchain. There are technologies other than many-to-many -many that would enable a lot of complex contractual agreements like that to happen. But, you know, when to go back to the very beginning here, let's not think about the technologies as the magic bullets here, that we can create new tools, we should create new tools. I've talked about a lot of problems. I hope some people are seeing opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities about them. I mean, I've, I've thought of at least three sitting here talking to you, uh, and I hope our listeners grab onto these ideas and go build things around them. But the mind change part of it is essential. I'm not talking about ideological mind change. I'm talking about that back to critical thinking. Can, can people look beyond what they ordinarily believe, what's known as confirmation bias? How can we get people to think twice about something that contradicts their beliefs and, and look into it more deeply? And how can we give them better tools to look into it more deeply on the technology side? And how, how can, can some of these big tech companies participate what, in that? What can they do to with their user interface that will enable people to understand that there are people who disagree with them and here's how you can find out what they're saying or there are ways to fact check this and Here's how you can do it. But how do you get people to want to fact check something? We're moving really, really fast. How do you fact check at the speed of a headline? I don't well, know. Well, you can crowdsource it. You could crowdsource it. But uh, again, who cares? Hmm. 
you wrote a blog post in 1998, and there was one line that stuck out in particular. We'll, we'll close with this. There are taboos against looking too critically at the real politics of technology. One of the things that makes technology dangerous is the way people forget where tools come from and what they were designed to do. This was in 1998. You really were ahead of your time, Howard. Oh, yeah, for better and worse. Amazing. I mean, really, truly amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, Howard, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Author, thinker, teacher. You can get his book, Net Smart, How to Thrive Online and Smart Mobs by going to his website, which is... Rheingold.com, R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. Rheingold.com. And uh, the five fundamental literacies, attention, crap detection, participation, collaboration, and network know-how. Get literate. Thank you, Howard. My pleasure. Tech on Politics is produced by Animal Media, with Bettina Warburg as executive producer and content production from Gina Delbeck. You can follow this show on Twitter at Tech on Politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris.